0: Welcome to The Dividing Line. I guess I have a voice. It was fine until just a moment ago. Um, We are starting off the week, and I'm not exactly sure what the schedule is going to look like uh, this week. It's going to change from day to day, so we'll just try to let you know uh, when we're going to be able to be with you. Uh, Sorry to all you truckers about yesterday. Hope you found something interesting to listen to. (laughs) We appreciate all your hard work, and... uh, Though I have yet to see a single um, disinfecting wipe uh, at Target since February, could we could we somehow? I'd like to get. I'd like to find at least one little thing of those again. That would be that 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 would be a good thing. But um, at least we got toilet paper. That's that's good. That's good. Um, that's good. Anyway, uh, stuff happening um, over the weekend. Uh, According to what I found online, uh, 10 people were shot and killed, 42 injured in gang violence in Chicago over the weekend. A new record uh, for a single Memorial Day weekend. And yet, while uh, that is going on, the mayor of New York, Lori Lightfoot, what did I say? Oh, did I say New York? I meant Chicago. Um, Lori Lightfoot um, decided that police uh, resources should be used to shut down churches, especially seemingly black Baptist churches and black Pentecostal churches. And I'm just sort of left going where are the priorities here again? Uh, I mean, If we were talking about the plague, then, okay, uh, because you'd be talking about churches meeting or cause tens of thousands of deaths, but we're not talking about the plague. The numbers are clear. The the more numbers came out, even using the CDC numbers, which I'll be honest with you, I question in many ways um, as to the collection methodologies. uh, when you pay medical institutions s- factors of money more to have certain patients, um, money corrupts numbers. I-, I mean, I won't even take the time to go into how-, how many times we have documented over the years that money corrupts numbers. Uh, look what happened just in, the- remember Gate. Remember the hockey stick stuff? And 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 all the, you know, how many times we found people who were fudging the numbers because it meant money. So anyway, even using the CDC numbers, if you don't live in literally a few square miles in central New York, out onto the island, down toward New Jersey, if you don't live in that hot zone, and if you're under 50... And don't live in an old folks home, which those two normally go together. Though there is that one guy. How did that one guy get into an old folks home? To the the guy that beat up the the, the veteran. How, how? I totally lost the plot on that one. How did that guy even get in there? I don't. I, I, I don't know. I can't figure that one out. That was just disgusting. Um, but if you don't fall into that area and those parameters. COVID 19 does have the exact same uh, mortality rate as influenza. Now, throw in what the the insanity that happened. And by the way, I know the current um, meme on the right is to basically say that leftist governors did this on purpose. I don't think they did it on purpose. I think they did it on panic. And this is why I have been talking about the dangers of panic. Um, I think they did it on panic because a, a guy in England with a long track record of massively overestimating deaths was behind the paper that caused the world to shut down. And I think these governors believed it. I remember it was only, what, a month and a half ago at most, that in the president's news briefing, they were seriously telling us that the next week, 200,000 people would die. That the very next week, that this is going to hit, we got to be prepared for it, 200,000 people are going to die. And so we're rushing hospital ships in, we're putting stuff up, and and none of it ever happened. But that's what they were expecting. And panic creates bad decisions that ended up costing lives. I think that's what happened. I don't think there was some nefarious, ah, we can get rid of all the old people. Uh, No, Uh, I think that they sent the COVID-positive patients back to nursing centers, um, old folks' homes, uh, because they were expecting every single bed, every single hallway uh, to be inhabited with... Well, with whom? Because vast. What? What was? What was the average age? Eighty-one. That's what it was in Italy too. Um. But anyway, um, I think that's what happened there. Um. Uh, so all of that aside, well, what? We can't put it aside because I predict that there will be a second wave debacle coming if not soon at least uh in uh, in the fall toward toward winter um i think i think churches if you're if you're reopening don't get used to it don't get used to it the holidays are coming and i can I, i'm not being a prophet to go i can think of a couple states that will go no christmas stuff no christmas gatherings and in fact, during the height of the flu season, um, we need to go back into uh, banning large uh, gatherings. And the, re- the response is going to be, okay, that's fine, as long as you do it to everybody. So if you if you shut down all the sports and all the rest of that stuff, then, you know, we'll just go along with it type of a thing. And that's what's coming. So you, you need to be thinking ahead. What's your response going to be? Um, to all of that kind of stuff. All of that is background to if there was, if this was the plague, then I could understand why Lori Lightfoot in Chicago would use police resources on the most violent weekend of the year so far uh, to shut down churches instead of trying to suppress the violence that took 10 lives and hospitalized 42 others. Um, in the gang, the gangland gangbangers war that continues in the streets of Chicago. All of that was, believe it or not, background. Wow, seven minutes in. Good, this could take a while. Um, all of that was background to a series of tweets that I put up that no one read. No one read. Hear that or everybody was scared to say anything about it. But I put up a an entire thread over the weekend. I think it was Saturday, may have been Friday. May have been Sunday. I don't know. Sometime over the weekend. It's a long weekend. And I pointed something out. Lori Lightfoot is a married lesbian. Married, according to the definitions of marriage that have absolutely no meaning. Um, but she's a married lesbian. Now If there had even been serious, credible rumors that she was a lesbian in 1980, would there have been any doubt, would there be any doubt whatsoever that that reality would have been central in any discussion of Lori Lightfoot's positions, stances, attitudes, toward the church in 1980. Some of you are going, we don't remember 1980. I, I get it. I understand. But, yeah, um, 40 years ago, w- would there have been any hesitation on the part of anyone, even non-Christians, to have raised the question, does Lori Lightfoot's sexuality impact her attitude toward the church. In 1980, there's no question that would have been on the table front and center. Yet, in looking at all the articles, do you see, I mean serious articles, I I guess there's probably some... Fundamentalist someplace that, you know, that's all they can talk about and that's what they go after. But I mean, anyone who makes a serious attempt to connect, because theologically you have to, theologically, if Romans 1 is central to your anthropology, then that, particular expression of the suppression of truth will be central to your analysis of an individual's actions and words and attitudes. The formation of their worldview. I saw no reference to it whatsoever. It is like you cannot say that in our society any longer. And that includes Christians. Christians are not allowed to point out that if there is that settled level of rebellion, settled to the point where you will take the Christian, God-ordained state of marriage, and this is, this would be true of Pete Buttigieg too, by the way, you will take that, redefine it, and rebel against the norms that God has established. You can't talk about that. You, you 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 cannot connect that to the rest of a person's worldview. Not in our not in our land any longer, and not even in the church. As Christians, we have to. You're gonna have an incomplete, incoherent biblical analysis of why somebody is doing what they're doing. But we can't we can't talk about it. We just are not allowed to do it. And it really struck me over this week, this weekend, as I saw the behavior going on there in Chicago. In light of what was also, and it's interesting, I I hadn't looked at the shooting stuff. It just so happened that in at least one of the articles that I was looking at, because it came from Chicago, over on the side, it's, it's in the sidebar, you know, uh, and you're like, That's current. That's at the same time you're sending, you've got police squad cars um, roping parking off so that people can't get to churches and stuff like that. While a few blocks away, the bullets are flying. And it's like, where do you get priorities like that? Well, there may be other things behind that. You see, we're not allowed to, you're not allowed to, no, 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 no. No, we, we've normalized this now. And so biblical parameters don't... No, no, you can't. Mm-mm. Society won't accept that. So you can't go there. You can't go there. That's all there is to it. And I posted a thread on that. I don't... There might have been one or two comments, but it was like, ooh, I ain't touching that. Mm-mm, no, I... I don't want to get kicked off Twitter. Well, I didn't get kicked off Twitter. Um might have if I'd posted on Facebook, I might, I might have I think Facebook is significantly right now more censorious than Twitter is. It's not that Twitter doesn't uh shadow ban and all the rest of that stuff they do, but um as far as just straightforward, you're out of here. Uh that seems to be more of a Facebook thing right now. So seemed like a lot of folks were like hoo, 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 hoo. I'm not gonna say a word about that maybe true but I'm not gonna say a word about it not gonna say a word about it so uh, also breaking news right now um, stunningly another apostate from behind a microphone with a guitar Um Evidently, there is uh, lead singer of Christian rock band Hawk Nelson says he no longer believes in God. I'll be honest with you. Never heard of him. Ne- I, I mean, I don't, okay. I, I'm not big on, you know, but a guy, a guy named John Steingard, lead singer of the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson, regretfully announced on Instagram last week that he no longer believes in God. And so it looks like he's a PK. Um, it says, I remember being uncomfortable with certain things. Praying in public always felt like some kind of performance, art, weird performance art. It can be. Um, I've, by the way, I've always had problems with some of the ways that we handle with flippancy, public prayer. I've always had problems with it. Why? Because it's worship. So when you just attach it to stuff, okay, it's just time to do it now. you know it, it just it's it becomes this perfunctory say a few words in Jesus name amen type thing. Um, yeah, because you're you're supposed to perform in a certain way. you know um, anybody in a church that I've been associated with will tell you that they get a little worried when I'm the one asked to pray uh, because if it's if it's gonna be, in, as a part of the service, I'm going to go longer than you're accustomed to. Um, in fact, what I've got to do, I haven't done this, but um, in my previous church, there would be a, a moment of silent prayer before the pastoral prayer, which I really like. But what's fascinating is young people struggle with that horribly. Silence for more than five seconds means the battery on their iPhone died. And that's a bad thing. And so it stresses them out. And you could never do it, but I, I wish there was some way to do a, a test where you just remain silent before praying for a full 60 seconds and then ask people how long they estimated it was that you they silent. And they, you would, you'd get people to think in 10 minutes. You really would when you have silence for that long. The next generation is not accustomed to that. It's just, that's just my experience. Um, but uh, anyways, um, emotional cries such as Holy Spirit come fill this place always felt clunky and awkward leaving my lips. Um, our youth conference, I attended encouraged every team to sign a pledge. They would date Jesus for a year. It felt manipulative and unsettling to me. I didn't sign it. Well... Yeah. Okay. So you got somebody PK exposed to some who knows what um, would they would date Jesus for date Jesus for a year? What what is that? I maybe it's some abstinence thing. But seriously, how about obey Jesus for your life? (laughs) That was date Jesus for a year. Sorry, guy, that you got exposed to that, but date Jesus for you. Um, Despite those concerns in his youth, he still ended up pursuing music and generally found some peace in the band Hawk Nelson. However, as time grew on, not overly, time grew on, what? Steingard increasingly had trouble with the concept of evil. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Can you not do anything about it? Does he choose not to? Is the evil in the world a result of his desire to give us free will? Okay, then what about famine and disease and floods and all the suffering that isn't caused by humans and our free will? If God is loving, why does he send people to hell? We're all questions that plagued him. Now, these are the most fundamental, basic questions that he should have been hearing clear and consistent answers to, especially as a PK from his youth onward. Maybe they weren't in the service when these were being offered because they were being entertained in kids' church. I don't know. Um, It does, whenever I hear anyone saying things, my my first question is, and so, having missed the numerous sermons on this subject, unless he was in a church where there was just no, verse-by-verse exposition, nothing. If so, that explains all of this. Um, the reason you didn't go to your elders was exactly what again? Because, y- y- you see, uh, is the evil in the world a result of his desire to, g- to give us free will? Yeah, it doesn't take the atheist too much to see through all this worship of free will on the part of so many in the church. And it certainly leaves you with a rather impotent God who has a desire to give you free will. Every time I hear that, I can't help but think of the Doctrine and Covenants. You know? Well, this is this is God's purpose. Mankind is the centrality of God's purpose, rather than God being the centrality of man's purpose. It's just it's just upside down and backwards and and everything else in the process. Um, but okay, let's say you, let's say because he's a Christian musician, he doesn't get to go to church very often, which doesn't make much sense. And if that's the case, that should tell you a little something about that kind of ministry. Um then you're saying there aren't billions of hours worth of resources online? Even, like, important, serious books that maybe were even written, I don't know, 500 years ago? That address all these things in depth? It does make you wonder. Steingard then attacked what he felt were contradictions between the Old and New Testament. Listen to this. Why does God seem so off in most of the Old Testament and then all of a sudden he's a loving father in the New Testament? Okay, right there. There's two possibilities. Either this is the, I'm a convert, so I'm going to grossly misrepresent my former faith syndrome, which you see all the time. Or this is some poor guy that got stuck up in front of people to perform because he had a good voice and could play the guitar well, and then never got the most basic, foundational Christian education that the, the kids in a good, solid church get, and they get it early on. Because this is... As soon as you hear this, you know... you're you're talking to someone who has minimal exposure to any serious theological training whatsoever Um, why does he say not to kill but then instruct Israel to turn around and kill men and women and children to take the promised land Um, because this was judgment upon them for their sin remember this flood thing you know Uh, yeah so the, the objections are, are all the standard stuff that there are 20 books that I can tell this gentleman never read and had no desire to read um, in, in the process. Um, so we shouldn't at all be surprised by these things. And I've been saying for a long time, tsunami of apostasy As the society, as as the cost of being a professed disciple of Jesus increases, those who are false disciples will refuse to pay the cost. When you're in a society where there's not a great cost, then you will have a far greater percentage of people that will go along because, hey, I can't. I would imagine he's been able to pay the bills singing the songs. Um, But once that tipping point is reached, things change. Things change. Um, It's interesting. Most of these famous apostates, when they're given the opportunity of actually talking to someone who would have answers to their questions, they're just not interested. They're just not interested. Just gotta. We're we're still we're still still good. Whenever I hear that UPS going click click down there, it's like hmm. I didn't see the lights flicker. No. Oh. That's not good. We're still going. That's great, but it's only it's only like hundred and seven outside. So what? Wait, oh, the UPS is, well, the UPS is only going to go so long if the, if APS doesn't, <laughs> doesn't keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there's there's they keep building houses and keeping connecting electricity to them, and so I just wonder how we can keep all this stuff uh, going, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Anyways, I'm sorry? Oh, I, I know that, but most of, most of that goes to California. That's the sad part of that. At least it used to. I'm not sure if that's changed or anything like that, but anyway. Well, they are moving here, and then they still vote for the same wackos they voted for in California. That's the problem. Um, <laughs> by the way, just, just in passing, <laughs> um, I was interviewed by The Atlantic today. Who knows where that's going to go or what that's going to do? Uh, I I don't know. But the initial questioning was about churches reopening. I said, well, I, I, I need to make sure you understand. I'm one of the pastors of a church that never closed. Oh! <laughs> oh that all of a sudden changed everything. And so one of the th- things that's been really interesting... I met three couples yesterday, two from California, one from Colorado, that had flown to Arizona to go to church. That's why they came. They knew Apologia was open, and they flew here to go to church. And then they were going back on Monday. And the week before, a guy had two reasons to go to church and to get a haircut. <laughs> California. <laughs> and so it's like, and you know, the first thing I said to the guy from California was, strange times we live in, isn't it? That you would actually get on a plane and fly to Phoenix, Arizona to go to church and get a haircut. Now, he did not get a haircut during church. I just want to make sure yeah. everyone understands that this is not a service that we have started offering, you know, in the back, a uh, little trim, a little, little off top, little, you know. Yeah, definitely not, No. <laughs> well, okay, that would be beard trimming. Uh, that, yeah. Rich was saying, definitely not in that church. It's like, no, that, it's not like there's a bunch of people with long hair off the top of their head. Okay. Beards, there are a few beards but i notice as the hot weather is coming in a lot of those are getting a little bit of a trim as well uh because trust me that's a you notice my beard is gone and my goatee is rather rather short uh because once that temperature starts regularly topping uh hundreds be be 100 and, are they t- still talking 112 they drop it down to 111 the next couple days that's a, only 109 oh that's that's a that's disappointing back in the 90s next week for a while so i'm i'm happy about that but um anyway how did I I just found it really interesting what what days we live in that you have folks come up to you and we're from Colorado we're from California and we we flew down to go to church it's like okay well I'm glad you all knew that we were here and hope hope that was a blessing um, uh, we're finishing up a series on Philippians and then... You know, Jeff's got some work left to do in Matthew 24, to be honest with you. He's not done there. Um, I've still got some questions for him uh, in in that section. So there's going to be some work to do there. But that will eventually finish. And uh, so we've been talking about other things. I'm going to be doing, it's going to be a lot of work, but I'm going to be, I did a series on the Lord's Supper, so I need to do a series on baptism as well. So that always is a a, um, controversial subject to address. All right get a deep seat in the saddle uh, because I I need this particular element of our study in the general response to Dr. Ken Wilson's dissertation is valuable across a broad spectrum what we're going to be talking about today, and that is we are going to specifically focus in upon Gnosticism. Now, as you know, Gnosticism is a term that is bantied about constantly. Orthodox Christians accuse these groups of Gnosticism. Non-Orthodox groups accuse the Orthodox of Gnosticism. Um, I have heard... The the Gnostic label attached to so many things that to be honest with you, um, it was very plain that the person using the phraseology knew nothing about Gnosticism. I have I just grabbed a few. These are just a, a couple of the books in my library on this, on Gnosticism. This is uh, the Nag Hammadi Scriptures, the Gnostic Bible. Uh, Meyer did both of those. Um, ancient Gnosticism by Pearson. Um, this is a subject that I have had to what? Are biased I'm sure they're bias sources because they're in my they're in my office. They're they're yeah anything in my office is a bias source just by definition. Uh, yeah. Um, not even not even going to waste time on that. Anyway, uh, the the. The reason that I have a pretty decent library of materials on Gnosticism uh, is because of the, the broad number of topics in apologetics that Gnosticism is relevant to. That is because Gnosticism was the first great enemy of the Christian faith. In fact, I've become convinced absolutely convinced and this is this is a <clears throat> this is not a perspective that you would I, i'm going to be in the minority in what i'm about to say i'm just letting you know ahead of time but i want you to hear what i'm saying so you can evaluate it for yourself given how dangerous gnosticism was almost immediately after the apostolic age I mean, second century. So, matter of decades. And proto Gnosticism, sort of a Jewish conglomeration form, is seen in Colossi. So, Gnosticism as a religious system flourishes and it, it threatens to destroy what we would consider Orthodox Christianity, in other words, a Christianity that takes seriously the Christian scriptures in the context in which they were written. Gnosticism was that dangerous. Gnosticism, especially Valentinian Gnosticism, was a purposeful, satanic imitation of the original that was highly effective in destroying many, many souls. And in academia today, I just slip my proverbial throat. You're not allowed to say that. You can't. In fact, in academia today, um, there's this one professor I've listened. He has an extensive class on Gnosticism. And when it comes to factual material, is very interesting. But he is a wild-eyed leftist, as almost anybody in that field is uh and you can just tell he loves Valentinus Valentinus is just oh so wonderful and insightful and brilliant Irenaeus what a crabby nasty Tertullian oh, Justin Martyr oh they're just so oh. the, the the you want bias wow there is oof, a tremendous amount of bias in the Academy when it comes to uh, this particular subject but The subject of Gnosticism is important to Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Islam, atheism, any type of dealing with um, church history, transmission of the text of Scripture, canon issues, oh my goodness, um, the Gnostic Gospels, all of that stuff. This is central to the apologetic task, and yet... I guess I can add this. Well, this would sort of fall into the church history section, but I've never understood, and I'm doing as best I can as a one-man army to change this, but uh, I've never understood why apologists in general are not Greek literate and church history literate, and especially... In regards to Gnosticism. I mean, broadly read, not just just a a narrow series of criticisms, but more broadly read. And I understand parts of it. I mean, we've taken some of these and done some story times with Uncle Jimmy. And for most people, it just sounds like babble. And it's because, especially with Gnosticism, less so with Valentinian Gnosticism, but... With classic or Sethian Gnosticism, there, is, there are so many peculiar names and terms and concepts that just trying to figure them all out is next to impossible. There are so many different forms of it. Be- because it's not like... They, they're not functioning in a worldview like you and I have in the West, it's not that this is some objective revelation that what one generation believes is going to be relevant to the next generation. It's, it's amorphous. It, it changes. It, 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 once it encounters a new belief, it sort of makes room for that. And, and, and so it, it changes over time. It's, it's not like they're claiming, here is one objective revelation from God. Valentinian Gnosticism is different. It's less complicated, less complicated terminology, but that's because it was specifically designed with a knowledge of the Christian faith in mind to imitate it while fundamentally changing it. And here's where I'm different. Here's where I am going to tell you something that I've never mentioned on this program before. You've never heard this. But as I have been delving into especially Valentinian Gnosticism, it has struck me that if we believe that scripture is divine in its origin, it's interesting that we tend to adopt the mindset that while the Tanakh, the Torah and the and Ketuvim, the Old Testament scriptures, the, old, the Hebrew scriptures, while the Tanakh can have a supernatural character to it that allows it to contain divine prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, when it comes to the New Testament, well, the New Testament's different. And while the New Testament can give us end time stuff, and for a lot of people, that's Matthew 24, that's all of Revelation, that's some stuff that Thess- Thessalonians, um, and that's Thessalonians, and that's all futuristic, but it's futuristic in such a way that the early church is never envisioned In the New Testament scriptures. In other words, part of this is because we're moderns, and we're living 2,000 years later, we're looking back at it, and we want these words to be all about us. Okay? Uh, I was raised with that. The, The books that I read, Late Great Planet Earth, and stuff like that, instilled in your thinking the idea that what I'm reading, especially when you read the book of Revelation, is all yet future, and we get to s- look at modern events and figure out what that's going to be, and so wasps with a man's head that looks like an Apache helicopter, and so, voila. Um, voila, I know. Um, I just like messing with people. Anyway, so that, that becomes ingrained in our thinking, and the result is that basically this first, second, Third, fourth generations of the early church. Who cares? They just... And part of, part of this is because I, I've spent so much time in that time period. Justin Martyr and, and obviously Ignatius and things like that. But then you get into the apologists. You get into Justin Martyr, you get into Tertullian, Irenaeus. And they had incredible struggles. They really had incredible struggles, and basically, we just go, "God just left them on their own." There's, there's nothing in the text of Scripture that would be relevant to them. There is in the Old Testament. Once you get the New Testament, there's nothing that's relevant until a future application, even from our own perspective. Isn't that where? Isn't that a default way of thinking? It's that. And once it becomes default, that's what gets communicated in our preaching, our teaching, and stuff like that. What am I getting to? As I read the New Testament, I see elements that are specifically important to that early period in their fight against the greatest enemy that the church ever faced, that was Gnosticism. Beware of Gnosis falsely so-called, Paul writes. And you see, the way I was trained in seminary, that would be primarily seen as evidence of a late date for the writings to Timothy. Or minimally, a very early presence of some form of proto-Gnosticism. But you weren't even allowed. It doesn't even enter into the commentaries to allow a supernatural element in Scripture that would give foundation to the early church to survive the onslaught. And doesn't it make sense that that's exactly when the enemy would attack And would attack in the most vociferous and ferocious of ways before you have a completed canon, before you have the foundation to be able to, I mean, Gnosticism in its full form is not much of a threat today. But why isn't it? It's because we stay on the shoulders of giants. We have definitions that allow us to see the consistency of Scripture. They didn't have that in those first decades. It's easy for us to go, eh, okay, yeah, you know, the, the one and then emanations and eons and oh, this is... But in that day, they didn't have the kind of background that you and I have. And so... We're allowed a certain level of supernaturalism from the Old Testament into its fulfillment in the New. But no one ever goes, I wonder if God placed in the Scriptures a body of truth that was specifically designed to guard that faith in that early period of time. I think he did. I think what we have in Colossians, I think what we have in Paul's warnings to Timothy, I think what we have in 1 John are phrased in such a way that they become directly relevant to a threat that the church was not yet facing in its fullest form, the form that it would face in the second and third centuries. And I just simply ask the question, why couldn't God do that? Because in essence, you're not even, that's not even a part of the discussion instead that's used by the by someone who approaches scripture as if it's not divine as if it's a product of human writing as evidence of much later origination and therefore you know Paul didn't write that and that came about later on and that's why in the um, late 1800s especially in the German schools it was just a given that John was written around 170, 180 you know, that's well after the rise of Gnosticism and so oh, okay, that, that's obviously a response to this type of stuff uh, but I think a lot of even believing evangelicals that would not have otherwise a foundational reason to uh, not think this way, we just, we just don't think this way we don't we don't look at it in that way so as i've especially been looking at valentinian gnosticism wow um like i said i've been listening to this leftist leftist liberal and he's just he you can tell he just loathes to have to say that irenaeus identified these as doctrines of demons you know why because irenaeus was right <laughs> irenaeus was spot-on. In fact, the more you learn about it, the more you realize these guys were not overstating things at all. They were spot-on in what they were saying. Especially Irenaeus. I mean, uh, my, my estimates of Irenaeus have gone up greatly. Especially in light of the fact that with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, um, he was found to have been incredibly accurate, incredibly accurate in what he described. And given the multifaceted nature, it's hard to describe something that is so has so much variation and so many different flavors of it. And yet he did a good job. Uh, Irenaeus. Um, but what a difficult time to be an apologist. We've got it easy today, guys. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, you're sitting there going, you shouldn't be saying this. No, no, I need to, if I'm going to be honest. We got it easy. When I look at the resources that are available to us to do apologetics today, oh, wow, it's, it's amazing. Being an apologist in 170, now that was tough. That was hard work. We get to stand on the shoulders of giants. We've got all this research and writing and reasoning and argumentation that we can grab out there. Oh, we're wimps. Can you imagine what it was like in 170? In the, and you're doing apologetics while the Romans want to throw you to the lions. There's a question. How many of us will be doing apologetics under persecution? They were, man, I don't know about you, but my respect for the early church just goes up and up and up the more I really realize what the context was that they were facing. So, we've talked about Manichaeism. And we've said Manichaeism drew from Gnosticism. And one of the important things to recognize in Manichaeism is it's pure dualism. Pure dualism. What do I mean? In Mani's theology, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness are co-eternal. One does not give rise to the other. One does not come into existence after the other. One is not dependent for its existence upon the other. They're co-equal, co-eternal. That is as dualistic as you can get. The Gnostic myth, let's talk about classic Sethian Gnosticism first. You can't define Valentinian Gnosticism without dealing with the Sethian stuff first. Um, Classic Gnosticism is likewise identified as dualistic because you have the sharp distinction between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is good, the physical realm is evil, but the physical realm is not co-eternal with the one parent, the one source of all good, the unknowable God. So, Manichaeism is technically a purer form of dualism than the standard classical forms of Gnosticism. So, In Gnostic... And again, you're going to find variations. One of the reasons you can pick up the Gnostic Bible here, you can pick up the Nag Hammadi scriptures, you can... I've got the, the, the Coptic version in the other room, it's four or five volumes long, just thousands and thousands of pages. And the reason that you can pick all of them up and find variations of thought is because there were variations of thought. We can, We can... Like Manichaeism, and and I think Manny picked this up from Gnosticism, you edit stuff to make it attractive to the audience you're attempting to reach. And so as your religion moves into different areas, if people are big on the Buddha, you you put the Buddha in there. If people are big on Jesus, you put Jesus in there. You, You mix and match. And they didn't find that to be disingenuous because they weren't claiming this is some kind of You know, we're Western thinkers. We think of revelation as an unchangeable thing. They don't that's not no. There are basic parameters that sort of define something that's Gnostic, but man, you can you can move around a lot within this system. You really can. So what I'm gonna describe to you is sort of the basic vanilla version. And then as you read in these sources, you're gonna find variation over here and variation over there. this eon is named differently over here, and, and that's just, there's there's no way to avoid it. Uh, that's That's how it is. So in Gnosticism, you have not a personal, self-existent deity as you have in Christianity. That's not what you have. You have an unknowable, divine purity of thought, the one parent that there's a there's a all through gnostic thought there is a male female interplay there is an androgynous concept there is the idea if you've remember when we read years ago we read the gospel thomas It's probably don't we do every like two years but read the gospel thomas and section 114 Peter says, Jesus, make Mary depart from this for women are not uh, worthy of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, don't worry yourself about it. I will make Mary into a man. And we're all like, wow, that's really weird. That's because it comes from Gnosticism and all men are women too. In other words, the physical has a spiritual, angelic male counterpart and salvation is the reuniting of the male and the female into one. So, there was no death until Eve was formed. Because Eve is taken out of Adam, and so there's a separation of the male and female. And that's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. So, salvation is those coming back together again. Who knew? But that male aspect is angelic, spiritual. So, you can imagine some of the things that resulted in. But, anyway. So, there is a background that the initiated would understand. The whole thing about Gnosis, mystery religions, and learning that Gnosis, and, and stuff like that. When we get into Valentinianism, you'll really see how almost all the modern cults are just much less imaginative versions of what the Valentinians were back in the olden days. I'll just give you a hint right now. What they would do is they would attend Christian churches, and they'd attend Bible studies, and Sermons, and then they'd find what looked like one promising non Valentinian, and then again the conversation. That was a really interesting conversation about the resurrection of Jesus. But you know, there's more to understand about the resurrection of Jesus. Would you like to come to a a meeting where we do some in depth Bible study about this? And that's how they operated, that's how they spread. That's why the bishops were, were like, you have, to, you have to learn to identify these people and see where they're coming from because they would act like plain old Christians. And then, let us give you a little more. Let us give you the gnosis. The, how many cults do that? Pretty much all of them. That's how they operate today. And that's how Valentinus started. That's how Valentinianism Operated. So, anyway, back to classic Sethian uh, Gnosticism. So, you have this divine being. There isn't an emphasis upon self existence over against creation, because remember, this divine being creates nothing, this divine being emanates. So there is an act of contemplation on the part of the one that results in what's called thought. Now, here's here's one of the problems. You have technical terms that are used of all these eons. Then, in, depending on who you're talking to, you'll have some that have eight inner eons and then... Ten and then twelve, a total of thirty, and then some have just a ten and a twelve, and then they'll have different names for the same eons, even though they're talking about the same thing. Um, it is just so outrageous, and part of this is because we only have fragmentary sources. I mean, with with the discovery of Nagamati, yeah, all of a sudden we got a whole whole bunch more, but there isn't 100% un- unanimous understanding of even how to interpret everything that's been discovered from Nagamadi. So, again, I can just only give you the bare bones because it just, it, it gets too complicated once you start trying to cover all the different schools and all the different variations. But this first emanation, this first thought, this first contemplation is sometimes called the mother, thought, and very often, this is, this is the one key that really identifies classic Sethian um, Gnosticism, the Barbalo. The Barbalo. And so this is an emanation. It's not... We, we, we err when we try to cram this into Christian categories of a divine being choosing to act... And creating no. This is this isn't this is a thought, an emanation, a, a disturbance in the force. If you want to use Eastern thinking, that results in not a personal being, but an eon. It is. It, it's almost a. It's almost a ripple in the space-time fabric. If you want to. Get Einsteinian. Uh, go there. The Barbelo, the Barbelo, the mother key element. But if there's going to be a mother, then some some Gnostics felt it was absolutely necessary that even in the one, there had to be a male and female. So in some, the emanation of the Barbelo requires the emanation of the Noose. The mind, the thinking, the father. So you have to have the male female counterparts. Very, most of them do have this. Some felt that once you go back to that first one parent, that there didn't need to be the male female, but then others felt that it was just because it's it's absolutely necessary in all the other eons. All the other eon, eons have a male a female counterpart. There has to be balance. And it is an imbalance in one of those pairs that results in the physical universe. Now, let me emphasize something here because this is so important to our analysis of Gnosticism in regards to the claims of Ken Wilson. And that is, there is no divine decree in Gnosticism. The the deity of Gnosticism does not have um, omniscience temporally, does not have knowledge of all future events. In fact, once we see what happens in how uh, the physical universe comes into existence through Sophia, In most of of these, Sophia is actually able to hide what she did from the rest of the Pleroma, the upper eons, um, because there is no omniscience in the sense that we would understand this. So, there is no divine decree. There is no decision on the part of the one pure God, who, again, hopefully you've seen is not, we're not talking about one, God as in Yahweh, um, there is no decision on the part of that God to create, to make, to self-glorify, to have a purpose in all that happens. It's not there. Just as there is in the Manichaeism, because you have full dualism there, and the actions of the kingdom of light are determined by the invasion of the kingdom of dark, this is temporal, this is non-eternal, no decree, absolutely no personal divine decree in this. There is no foundation in this system for such a thought in Gnosticism or in Manichaeism or in Stoicism. That's more, of a, much more of a mechanical reason for that in in viable laws and things that flow from that. So there's there's no divine decree. So the attempt to lump together these disparate beliefs into the foundation of the key element of the claim of Wilson's dissertation, Dupied, no foundation at all. None. It is indefensible. Okay? So, just so you understand. Now what becomes really confusing is that once a a the documents of gnosticism become available to us there is a mention of the christ and this is what for us is so hard because the christ for us is an identifiable historical individual we know of course that he is the incarnate one and so he's He's eternal in the sense of that divine person, but temporal in the sense of the incarnation. And that's not how Gnosticism views the Christ. But one, but, but the sun or the thought thinking itself is another eon, another emanation that takes place. Once you start having multiple eons, then there's interaction between the eons that results in other eons. Okay? And so, the Christ is an emanation one of the highest of the eons. So, you've got the barbelo, you've got the noose, the the thinking, the mind. Then you have the Son, the Christ, which is the thought thinking itself. So, you can see how the mother is called thought, the father is called thinking. And so the result of the father and the mother is the son, which is the thought thinking about itself. And this is so far outside of the the rather concrete categories that we utilize that it's not easy to grab hold of it. Um, some hallucinogenics would help. I'm <laughs> sure it would make a whole lot more sense uh, uh, after after something like that. In fact, I imagine Gnosticism probably makes more sense in Colorado, uh, like especially in Boulder. Uh, if if we, if we if we if we if we were walking down some of the streets I've been on in Boulder, um, after a few blocks, this would start making a little bit more sense. Yes, you don't have to go into any of the shops; just walk on by, and it'll start making a little more sense. ooh Okay, so. There is also, in this inner circle of eons, the heavenly spiritual anthropos, the first Adam. But this isn't, doesn't have anything to do with the historical Adam. This is why it is so difficult for us, because we automatically transfer thinking. You having problems with your chair out there, big guy? Yeah. Is that one of them that you worked on? No. No? Okay. All right. It, are you sinking? Are you? Because uh, I'm, I'm worried. I'm just gonna see you go. Just, just, just. Yeah. Okay. All right. Don't touch, it, don't touch it. You break it. Okay. All right. Just watching him, you know, going up and down, and he runs out that way with the chair, and he comes back, and it's, it's like, I'm supposed to be teaching here, and this is tough stuff, and I've got, 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 you know, again, the stuff that goes on through the window, you don't understand, you cannot possibly understand. Okay, so we continue on with further emanations, but what you need to understand is is you could draw circles and each one of the emanations is going to start moving a little bit farther away from the one true source. And so there, there is a thinking that the farther you get away from the one true source, there is a degradation, um, a a, a diminishment of how closely related you are to that one. So the Barbelo, very, very close. But then these thoughts get... so, so, So you have four lights, and then there's 12 eons. Let me just give you some of them. Uh... The, the Viethai, love, understanding, idea, Oriel, memory, afterthought, perception, eleth, peace, perfection, armazel, truth, grace, form. Um, obviously, these are Greek terms that had philosophical meanings that are being applied to what we would want to refer to as maybe um, aspects of God's character, attributes of God. Things like that become eons, actual emanations like understanding, memory, perception, truth, grace, form. But what's important is that the final, sometimes called the lowest, sometimes called the youngest, of the eons in, they're called the upper eons, in the pleroma, pleroma, the fullness. Remember, in Paul... That's the term he uses. All the fullness, pleroma of deity, dwells in Jesus Christ in bodily form. That was a utter refutation of this before this had been expressed. That's, why, that's what I was saying earlier. Is, I'm seeing how the New Testament contains prophetic supernatural revelation to equip the second and third century churches to survive that's a minority view because why because you're not supposed to look at scripture in a supernaturalistic fashion so the 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 final low lowest um, Emanation, who's an eon in the pleroma, in the fullness, is Sophia. Now you've heard of that word. You know what it means. Philosophy. Sophia is wisdom. Isn't that weird? That the lowest would be wisdom itself. Sophia. Now Sophia is a feminine form. Sophia is has a male partner. That Sophia is to act in accordance with. And the other other eons, likewise, male, female, they act in accordance. So much so that the eons do not think or contemplate separately from each other. Now, why is this important? Because this is where creation comes from. This is where, it's what we got to hear, okay? The youngest, lowest eon, Sophia, chooses to contemplate the one parent, the great one that had always existed and then began these emanations, to approach and to contemplate this one apart from her male consort. Now, you're all sitting there going, you're saying that like it's really important. (laughs) It is. Because this is where creation comes from. Not from the choice of the eternal God, the unknowable God, the source of the emanations, the source of the eons. No. That deity never chose to create. It was not his... Plan to emanate these eons, and then Sophia goes wonky, and that was his plan. No, there is no decree. There is no decree. There is always a sexual overtone. The male female stuff has sexual overtones. And in some of the writings, there is a sexual overtone as to what Sophia did. Again, the stories will differ greatly. They really will. But the result of Sophia contemplating apart from her male consort is a sort of a form of self-impregnation that shouldn't happen if she had thought in concert with her male consort, but since she didn't, she still, Sophia is still a divine eon with divine power within her. And thinking is what's resulted in all these other eons emanating from the thought and the thinking the mind and and the mother the mother and the father thinking mind and so when she thinks but thinks improperly outside of the realm of balance as a result that divine power within her brings forth a misshapen deity a deity that has divine power, but is misbegotten, is hideous, called Yalta by Oath. Yalta by Oath. Yalta by Oath is an ignorant, yet powerful emanation, being, that is given birth by Sophia. Now, various forms in some of the schools... Um, one of the other eons comes alongside Sophia and Sophia is accepted back once it's found out what happened Sophia is accepted back into the Play Roma, Um and Sophia works with some of the other eons to try to undo what has happened but the point is that Yalta by Oath is the result of a mistake, an error, an imperfection on the part of the lowest of the emanations, the eons, from the one true God. Yalta by oath thinks he's the only God. Yalta by oath becomes Yahweh. So, the God of the Old Testament is a hideous, misformed result of an error in the lowest of the eons. And he thinks he's the one true God. He thinks he has all power. Um, He thinks people should only worship him. And he is the one that originates the physical creation. Because he has the power to do so, because he is the offspring of Sophia. So he can do it, and he can try to recreate. So you'll see a lot of diagrams where you've got the pleroma up here, and then Sophia here, and then the connection to something similar down here, where Yalta by all tries to imperfectly recreate um, what he can't really understand, but still has knowledge of through Sophia. And so all of the uh, planetary archons, powers, beasts, I mean, I could just give you uh, uh, the the planets, uh, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, uh, these are all created. And of course, they're all connected with powers because, like I said, I think on the last program on Friday, astrology and issues like that central to all of this, all of this. But, for example, but but there's connection to biblical characters. So, the moon is connected to Abel. Mercury is connected to Cain. You start bringing in mosaic categories, but the mosaic god, Moses was deceived by Yalta by Moses was worshipping the misshapen deity. Okay? So, all the powers, uh, Demons, everything in the physical universe comes about through Yalta by Oath, who is the misbegotten result of Sophia contemplating the one true God, deity, thing, whatever. So, it is then through these powers that Adam and Eve are made. So when you think about it, and in, in Adam and Eve, there is a part part of the mythology in some of the forms is that there is a, and this this becomes the light in Manichaeism. It, it's not quite as um, defined in that way, but the divine spark the divine spark that comes from Sophia into Yalta by Oath then goes into Adam and then in some of the stories it's actually Sophia and some of the other eons that bring Eve along and then Yalta by Oath sees that there is this energy in Eve and so he attempts to rape her. But the energy leaves before he does so, but he does rape her. That's how evil Yalta by Oath is. There was a absolute detestation of the God of the Old Testament by the Gnostics. Which Valentinus mutes because he wants to get Christians in. Okay, so he takes he takes that part of it out. Um, Yahweh becomes Yahweh, but Yahweh is not evil. Doesn't try to rape anybody. He is the master architect, but he's still ignorant. But you don't have this there is a deeply anti-mosaic uh, polemic within the Gnostic mythology. There really is. There's a detestation, as there is amongst some Christians today, too, sadly. Um, So, anyway, so, this ends up resulting in uh, uh, mythologies about Seth and Cain and who has the divine sparks within them, and you, you end up with the Sethian race, and it it gets really, really complex, but for our purposes right now, it's important to recognize that the physical universe in the classical Gnostic Sethian concept, the physical universe was not brought into existence by the will of the Eternal One. So there is no purpose, there is no predestining decree, there is no foundation for election. You will end up with different kinds of mankind, spiritual, soulish, animalish. And the Gnostics and the Valentinians, they will all argue about whether the spiritual, whether the soulish can become spiritual, because the spiritual will eventually go be absorbed back into the Pleroma, into that final place. But it's an, it's an absorption. It's 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 not the continued existence of a specific created soul, but an absorption back into the one. There's a monistic concept to it. But there's an argument about whether a soulish one can become a spiritual one, or whether the, there are some people who actually had the idea in the eschatology of Gnosticism, can't believe I'm talking about the eschatology of Gnosticism, um, where the soulish ones would have the opportunity of living with yalta by oath, well, in Valent- Valentinianism, they would be living not with the but they'd be living with Yahweh because he sort of gets to continue living because I guess he thinks he's still the one true God, but never in the pleroma in the in the fullness, but in the lower sphere uh, but the earthly can never be saved in almost all the schools and see so that is what. Christians were arguing against in Gnosticism in regards to an idea of predestination or election. has nothing to do with what what is biblically taught. This has to do with a mechanistic concept down here in in the lower regions that have no connection whatsoever with, with the one God above at all. So, you have to keep that in mind. Have to keep that in mind. Now, the Gnostics would have various rituals, but so many of them varied depending upon what part of the empire or farther to the east uh, these things were found in. Uh, Very frequently, there would be uh, something similar to Christian baptism but there's always been stuff similar to the ritual washing is found in pretty much every religion there is that shouldn't bother you that i've noticed that some christians are really put off and bothered when they discover that there are parallels between what we do and what others have done all along that shouldn't surprise you i mean When you join a religious faith, there is very often a symbolic laying aside of the old and putting on of the new. What is unique in the Christian faith is how that represents the gospel, and the gospel is absolutely unique. That's why all this zeitgeist stuff and all this stupidity about trying to draw parallels to... Manichaeans or Gnostics or whatever else, completely misses the reality that what is fundamentally foundationally definitional of the Christian faith is one true God, personal and self-sustaining, who creates all things and all things are dependent upon him. Not that came out of creation. Not that, dev- not that was influenced by creation to do something. No. We're talking about absolute monotheism, that personal God glorifying himself by entering into his own creation. This is what, where the Trinity becomes central to these things. Um, and providing the full price of redemption by union with himself. No one, no. Any little part of that, you can try to draw a parallel to something out here. It's the whole that is unique, not the little parts that go into it. Because we're human beings, we live in this world. There's only so many unique things we can do. You know, you got to be, you got to keep breathing. You can't have a ritual that involves spending ten hours underwater. Doesn't work. Okay, <laughs> just that's not where we live. So there are going to be. Areas where you can make inappropriate, non-helpful, deceptive connections between systems. Which is what Dupied is, by the way. But that's also... See, Dupied is just a Christian bad version of the zeitgeist stuff. Where you draw connections between various different kinds of religions and Jesus. That's what Ken Wilson did with... Calvin and, and, and Augustine, is he tries to make completely invalid connections to stuff that should never be connected together. So you don't connect Osiris and Isis and Horus to Jesus' resurrection because there are too many fundamental category errors in the process of doing so. You don't connect Manny's cosmology with the concept of divine decree in Christianity because there are too many fundamental category errors To get over. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same error. Just being made for another purpose. Um, So, as a Christian, you you should, when you see what looks like similarities, you don't just jump to the idea of same source. You ask the question, what is the purpose and what is the context? What is the purpose and what is the context? A ritual cleansing, a baptism... Oh, well, that's found in almost any religion there is. That's true. But did that, what did that represent in the other religion? Well, there there can be similarities there, too. If it's an initiatory rite, it's, this is where I was, and this is where I am now. Okay, so what makes Christian baptism unique? It has to picture the gospel. It has to picture union with Christ, the God-man, in his death, burial, and resurrection, which actually took place in history. It wasn't just a mythological thing. That's why Christian baptism has to have that unique aspect to it. There are some important aspects to that I'm not going to get into right now, but think through them and you'll figure it out. So, when we study church history, we see these things, and what that does for me and what I'm trying to help you to see is that increases my appreciation for what makes the Christian experience utterly unique. But to see where that comes from, you have to have an understanding of the wholeness, the whole fabric of the Christian faith to see how the Incarnation is related to atonement, how it's related to the the eternal purposes of God and creation itself and to the final state. and It's seeing the big picture. It's growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that then increases your appreciation and your confidence in these things. So, there is a danger in exposing people to Gnosticism and Manichaeism. Um, I've said many times, debates will result in people leaving Christian churches and joining false religions. And as a result, I I remember very clearly, back when we first started this ministry, there was a lot of people would say, I I just don't think you should, you know, you just need to leave well enough alone. Leave them alone. And, you know, just there's, there's enough to do to reach just the pagan lost. Um, if they've got their religion, just, just leave them alone, because, you know, we, some of our folks might end up joining those churches. The reality is, yeah, they might. And in fact, they should. Why? Because if they're not true believers, they need to go out from us. And they go out from us for many, many reasons. Normally, it's just the world. Constant exposure to the world. But it can be exposure to false religion. It can be, that will happen. It will not happen to the elect. The sheep will not do that, not stay there. We can have that confidence. Christ is not going to fail in his, in, his, in, his, in his work. But the elect will be strengthened in their faith by seeing the beauty and the harmony of their faith in light of these falsehoods and these counterfeits. So, in other words, I'm saying you can actually trust the Holy Spirit of God to continue to sanctify Christ's sheep, because we can. Um, But what I'm saying is, when we look back in history, when we see these things, these things can actually help us to grow in our faith. When we see the terrific struggle that the early church had against these things, and when we understand why, then we can appreciate the bulwarks that we have against these falsehoods we have a a we can defend the old testament's testimony to monotheism in a way that they struggled to do we know more about the backgrounds than than they knew at that point in time and as popular as, as it is in liberalism to go, ah, yeah, the Old Testament's henotheistic and blah, 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 blah. No, actually, it's monotheistic, and you can defend that. We can see the advantages we have today over where they were then. That should cause us to appreciate them all the more, given that they had so much less than we have, should make us much less judgmental about them, and should make us much more thankful for what we ourselves have. And it should then drive us to see, to want to see even more. And this is the illustration I've used forever, but it, the beautiful interwoven fabric of divine truth throughout all of Scripture and then being elucidated as Christ builds his church. And he will continue doing so. He will continue doing so. And isn't it amazing that Irenaeus was taking the time To study the same stuff you and I were just studying? Living in a place where, in all probability, he didn't die of natural causes. In all probability, he was martyred. We don't know that for certain. We can't tell, but we know there was severe persecution in that area, in that time period. For most of us, we would be solely solely focused completely upon survival in this world. Irenaeus was concerned about the survival of those in his flock, their souls in light of the deception that was being preached by people in that day, Valentinian Gnosticism. Are we concerned about our our churches? Are the people in our in our congregations? Or are we primarily concerned about the events and affairs of this particular life that's around us right now? Some of the questions. So there is a rundown of Gnosticism. I hope you see why it's important. I hope you see why it's relevant in, uh, in apologetics. This is not just about the Ken Wilson stuff. It is important to that. We'll make application to that in our summary statement. But I hope you can see this is important to so much else when it comes to the subject of apologetics, and how apologetic, apologists need to know church history, and what was happening at that time. You really do, really do. Well, thank you for joining us today. I don't know when we're starting tomorrow. It's going to be two or three, our time. Um, I've got a really busy morning. I'm doing another solar show tomorrow for homeschool kids from Apologia. Um, that's fun, man! I'm going to tell you. that's And it's so much easier than stargazing, because you don't know, have to it's normally clear, pretty easy to find the sun in Phoenix. If you can't find the sun in Phoenix, Arizona, you really need to find another thing to be doing with the kids. You really do. Um, but I'll be out there in the East Valley early in the morning. Uh, you got to let the sun come up some so you, can, so you can see it, but I'll be doing a solar show for some kids tomorrow. Uh, so we'll probably still be shooting for two. Is, is, that, is that good? Let's just say we're going to go for two, um, and uh, uh, we'll go from there. But thanks for listening. I hope it's been useful today. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.